As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Ask N.T. Wright Anything podcast. Hello and welcome back to the show. Really glad to say uh, we've got a fresh conversation with Tom for you today on the programme. Uh, I'm going to be introducing him along with another New Testament scholar, Justin Bass, for today's show. But just a reminder, you can find out more about the show, get past archive of the programmes, our newsletter and much more at premierunbelievable.com. When you register for the newsletter there, that's when you'll also get the opportunity to ask Tom a question for yourself. And don't forget, while I've got your attention, we've got an exciting webinar coming up just next week, uh, Tuesday, 15th of November. Sean McDowell will be joining me. Culture War Questions with Sean McDowell. You can register. Again, just go to unbelievable.live to register. It's absolutely free, uh, but we'd love to see you there. You can ask questions. Sean is a great apologist, thinker, speaker. And we'll be taking your questions on all manner of subjects. It's a live show. Again, unbelievable.live to register for your free place. For now, let's get into today's show. Well, hello and welcome back to the Ask N.T. Wright Anything show. Uh, I'm Justin Briley. And today, Tom and I are joined by a special guest, Justin Bass, who I will introduce in just a moment's time. But first, a warm hello to Tom coming to us as usual from his house hello. in yeah. Oxford. Uh, Tom, it's been a little while since we recorded together because you've not been very well recently. Do you want to tell us what, what the status is at the moment? Yeah, well, just just briefly, and it's public knowledge, I picked up COVID while Maggie and I were on holiday eight weeks ago, and I thought it would last maybe a week or so, and the, the main symptoms did last a week and then declined. But I've been left with this elongated version of it, which is general tiredness and slight feeling of fluidness um, and... Uh, just needing to rest a great deal. And then it's it's had an annoying corollary that, I th- and I've heard people say this, that COVID apparently attacks weak places in your system, one of which seems to me to be my wrists and hands. And I've got arthritis quite badly in wrists and hands now, which is very painful. And so I'm on various medication and so on. Um, the doctors assure me that this too will pass and that rest, more rest would be a good thing. Uh, I don't do rest very well. So so this, this is an ongoing problem. But anyway, uh, obviously, I'm here talking to you now. I can function at some levels, which is better than nothing, I suppose. Anyway, good to see you. Well, good to see you too. And, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that you're feeling well enough to, to do a, a recording or two with us today, at least. And um, I'm sure there are a lot of people hearing that who'll be praying for you as well, Tom. Yeah, well, world. thank you. Thank you. Um, it's, it's lovely to, to see you again anyway. Um, Justin Bass joins us on the show today. Justin is over yes. here in the UK for a little while. Um, we're doing some exciting things. Uh, we're 
going to be recording a, a discussion debate with Bart Ehrman soon for our big conversation series. So, uh, so that's very exciting, and that'll be coming out yes. next year. But we thought we'd squeeze in uh, a little bit of a conversation with you and Tom while you're with us here in the UK at the moment, Justin. So Honored to be here. Thank it's, you. Honored to be here. Um, Honored to be here with you and Tom. Thank you. Um, Justin, you're a New Testament scholar yourself. Um, tell us a bit about yourself, because you actually have spent a few years at least in Jordan um, teaching New Testament there. How did that all come about? Well, it, it, let me start with one one little story about my conversion yeah, that please. connects with Tom, if I yeah, can, because yeah. I think he'll enjoy this. But I, I, God opened my eyes in college. There's a whole story with that. But soon after that, I was at, I was at Southern Methodist University, SMU, and I was on my way to get a business degree to get a uh, master's in, uh, to, to get a business degree, master's in business, and I was going to get a, a law degree, and everything changed. I wanted to just do religious studies classes, and so I took these courses from this very liberal, you know, attacking the Bible every day, you know, uh, questioning miracles, showing contradictions in the Bible, uh, so-called contradictions in the Bible, and it led me to search for, you know, answers to those questions, and that was what originally got me into apologetics, and I people who I discovered were people like C.S. Lewis, uh, William Lane Craig, uh, Luke Timothy Johnson, and a scholar named N.T. Wright. On um, the book it said <laughs> well, N.T. Well. Wright. And so uh, well, well. really, really blessed to, to discover your books early on. And, and so the evidence for the resurrection was always uh, very, very early on yeah. uh, key for, for, my, for my commitment to Christ and, and just, um, just how passionate yeah. I am for for uh, proclaiming the Lord and and uh, and proclaiming the evidence, so so well, it really goes back to those those yeah. early days. But oh, that's wonderful! Yeah, well, you, you never know where your work is reaching, Tom. Do you? And, and it's lovely to hear stories like that when they come. Yeah, through. I think I think it was who was Jesus? Who was Jesus? Ah, right. Okay, okay. Nineteen ninety-two. I remember well. <laughs> um, I often say publishing books is like young adult children they go out into the world and they meet people that you've never heard of and they come back and tell you about it <laughs> it's kind of odd <laughs> that's that's lovely um so coming to to your time in in jordan um tell us about that because that's a really interesting place to be teaching new testament yeah so so the story with that is so so after uh the lord opened my eyes and smu and i ended up graduating with a business degree but then i went to dallas theological seminary and got master's, PhD, graduated with that, with a PhD in New Testament studies, and then I went on to um, pastor a church. I was teaching part time at DTS, and I started debating atheists and and um, and different kinds of unbelievers. And the whole time, I actually thought the Lord was going to call me to the mission field. From early on, when I first heard about the unreached, when I first heard about all the people who had never heard about Jesus throughout the world, I was passionate about going, especially to the Middle East. But the call just never came. And mm. so um, around the time I was, uh, I had been pastoring a church for about six years, and we, my, my wife and I had the opportunity to go to Amman, Jordan. And while we were there, we felt the Lord call us. Uh, hey, sell everything and come to Jordan. And and I, there was a connection early on from DTS because I don't know you you, you probably know uh, Dr. Ahmad Shahadi. Um, if, I don't know if you heard of him. He's he's written some great books on the Trinity. He he's the he's the president of uh, Jordan Evangelical Theological Seminary. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Okay. And and he he graduated from DTS in 1991 with a PhD and went back to Jordan. He's he's Jordanian. But he went back to Jordan and started the seminary, and uh, I had that connection. I knew about Jets, mm. and so I m met with him. That was one of the, the things I did when we went there to visit, 
and and they had this great need for for a PhD, you know, a professor for someone for a professor that had a PhD for accreditation and other things. They really needed that help. And so the, everything just fit perfectly. And so I started teaching there. Uh, amazing students, sharp students. Uh, they're training Arabs for the Arab world. And it was just such mm -hmm. an honor to be there mm -hmm. for three years. And and uh, COVID kind of ended my missionary career. So, <laughs> so we came back just to promote my book on the bedrock of Christianity and ultimately got stuck in America. We were only going to be here for a month and then we got stuck. Uh, but we ended up having to transition yeah. back. And uh, but the Lord took care of everything and so but 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 i'm still connected with i have them. it right here yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. so so um we'll talk about the book in just a moment but i tom it's interesting i mean have you heard of your work sort of being used in the middle east much um are you aware of sort of the state of bible scholarship there among christians um uh, only only tangentially i was in jerusalem for three months in 1989 and that's where i was working initially on my big project and uh, teaching at the Hebrew University. And I got to know some of the um, Palestinian clergy, particularly Naim Atik, who I was next door neighbor to when I was living in Jerusalem. I think Naim must have retired by now, but he was then, I think, archdeacon of the Anglican Church in, um, in Jerusalem. And uh, uh, I think he was then put up to be bishop when the then bishop retired, but then there was a bit of political stuff and he didn't get that job. But he's a leading, um, I guess, Palestinian liberation theologian. And he, he wrote that book, um, Justice and Only Justice. Um, we're going back to the, uh, I guess, to the 19... 1980s now 80s 90s um i then did some stuff i went to a conference of middle eastern clergy in cyprus and gave some bible ex bible expositions but um apart from very brief meetings at conferences and so on mm. i haven't been able to mm. keep up that link sadly yeah. there's <laughs> it's, it's frustrating i just yesterday sent apologetic letters to two people from other parts of the world who are inviting me to speak at some great gathering or other and i say look i'm sorry i'm an old man now i just can't <laughs> go get around the world doing all this stuff um uh, but it, it is fascinating yeah. to see but also um i've recently had contact with some folk from india particularly um particularly working with the dalit and so on and uh, very much concerned with the impact that the sort of things that i've been saying particularly about new creation um could have on the kind of mission work that they're doing. So uh, that's to say, no, not specifically to the Middle East, um, but to, to th things are happening yeah. all over the place, obviously. And it would be so great to get Tom's books translated into Arabic, many of them, because uh, over there, Tim Keller's books and C.S. Lewis books, incredibly, and, and some of Chesterton's books actually are in Arabic. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> interesting i i honestly can't remember i think there are one or two of my books in arabic and there are one or two of my books in farsi as well because there's a chap in iran who translates my books um and then he sends them out electronically and they are dispersed through the uh, farsi diaspora mm. um so awesome. yeah stuff yeah. is happening yeah. and again i, ca which I can't book, control which it. book is in farsi i honestly don't know <laughs> I, i'd have to um I'd have to email him and find out. Like sending out your children and hey, see what comes back. Yep, it right. is, exactly. Yeah. exactly. Well, um, lovely to, to sort of be able to connect you both today um, through through the podcast. Um, tell us a little bit about, and Tom's already waved it for the camera, the, the bedrock of Christianity, uh, Justin. Yes. Um, uh, this is obviously, uh, the subtitle is The Unalterable Facts of Jesus' Death and Resurrection. What 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 what's uh, What's the core thesis of this book that you've written? Yeah, you know, it's, as Tom knows well, uh, biblical scholars, uh, New Testament scholars disagree on just about everything. Um, <laughs> today and over the last, you know, 250 years of biblical scholarship, uh, 
But where they agree is pretty fascinating. And so this is something that really finds its origin for me in, in my time in seminary, my time uh, in, in the PhD studies. And just just finding where they agree mm. was fascinating to me. And, and where, really where they agree when it comes to the sources and certain uh, facts is Paul. Yeah. And so, so you can very simply say, Paul, uh, certain aspects of his biography, um, certain letters by him, seven today, but but across the, really the last 250 years, First uh, Corinthians, Second Corinthians, Romans, and uh, Galatians, everyone across the board. You know, there's this small little segment of uh, German scholars that that may have been spoken something um, in Tubingen uh, that that denied it for a while, but but ultimately 99, you know. Percentile, yeah. we're talking, agreeing that Paul wrote Galatians, Paul wrote Corinthians, um, Romans. The, the the details of his biography within those books are historically accurate, and then certain facts then emerge from those mm. those letters, um, especially concerning Jesus and and his death and resurrection. And and the ones I focus on, there's many more, but the ones I focus on in the book are his crucifixion. Uh, the fact that Jesus was crucified, you know, again, across the board, everyone agrees. Uh, but I, I also add, and, th and this is really an expansion, I, I'm trying to do an expansion a little bit on what, what Tom has focused on, because I haven't seen this a, a lot in the resurrection books, and, th and that's the second fact, which is the the unique, unparalleled claim of the resurrection. We, we I think pe uh, Christians don't emphasize enough the claim and how unparalleled it is, and really it's a, uh, a mutation. I like the Larry Hurtado's, you know, language of... The fact that that you know the, the the early Christians were were speaking positively about a crucified man and about crucifixion in general that that's just unparalleled. The fact that they were right. even talking about resurrection, the Daniel type resurrection, uh, had happened in a single individual and had happened in the Messiah. This uh, this was unparalleled. And then that this person that was crucified had had risen again in the Daniel type resurrection is also divine in some way. <laughs> is also I would say you know mm -hmm. he's he's one with uh, with with the Father, uh, there is only one God, and somehow He is a part of the on that side of of of, of the divinity. He is on the Creator side, uh, so that would be that kind of threefold yeah. unique mm. claim. And then the third is the appearances. This is pretty much you know throughout church history, this has been the number one way Christians have shown you know the proofs of the resurrection that He appeared to all these people, and ma mainly the ones cataloged in First Corinthians fifteen. So we're talking Peter, the twelve. And again, is there a, a broad agreement among scholars about the, that the disciples claimed that they had experienced the risen Jesus? Exactly. So, so the, and, and, and specifically, we could say Peter, James and Paul. I think mm. when you get down to really the bare, yeah, again, sure. bedrock. And, and, and I'm going to add Mary Magdalene because even Bart Ehrman uh, agrees <laughs> with Mary Magdalene. And so those four individuals and three and the other three are mentioned in the earliest creed, uh, this creed found in First Corinthians 15 that Paul quotes. So he appeared to Peter, he appeared to James, and last of all, he appeared to me. So it's interesting that those three happen to be the ones that across the board mm. scholars agree on, and those three happen to be the ones we yeah. also have strong historical evidence that they died for their faith, that they were martyred. So it's just a, an extraordinary yeah. thing. We know that they believe Jesus appeared to them, and we also know that they died believing it. That's, that's an, a, an extraordinary thing to me. Tom, just talking about these particular aspects, you know, um, Paul's witness to the crucifixion and the resurrection, um, the the uniqueness of these claims and indeed the appearances uh, as well. Anything to add to, to what Justin's already said there? Well, I mean, I, I'm basically 
sitting here agreeing with everything I'm hearing, <laughs> which isn't difficult. Um, obviously, scholars have debated, um, uh, well, maybe there was this little bit in 1 Corinthians 15 or that little bit which we could pull out or tweak this way and that. But um, uh, Justin's basic case that 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 3 and following is, is bedrock, um, I think is, is very widely accepted. Interestingly, Simon Gathercole in Cambridge has just produced a book called The Gospel and the Gospels, um, or maybe the other way around the gospels and the gospel i'm not sure but he's he's taking first corinthians 15 the the confession of faith there and saying let's run this as a test through not only matthew mark luke and john but also the gospel of thomas the gospel of philip the gospel of peter uh, the gospel of the hebrews those second third fourth century um, often gnostic texts and just see how they compare and his thesis is guess what matthew mark luke and john conform very strikingly to what paul says was the unique early witness now, I have other problems with Simon's book, but on that, I think everyone is agreed that that 1 Corinthians 15 te uh, uh, text really does take us back to the beginning. This is, if Paul says to a church that um, had uh, many different factions within it, this is what we all preach, as you know well, um, then we can, we can be sure that we're on safe ground there. Mm. Um, the question then is, of course, um, what sense can we make of that? Yes. And uh, uh, because everyone knows that Christianity was supposed to teach resurrection, but for centuries, um, a great many people have said, oh, well, they, they were old-fashioned, they believed in all sorts of weird and wonderful things, with, which we, with our modern knowledge, know couldn't possibly happen. And so that, that's where the debate comes in. Yeah, well, that, right. that'll be part of the debate we, we are having with, with Bart Ehrman soon. But um, yeah. I'd love to sort of spend some time talking about, you know, the, the final fact that you bring to bear in the book. And this is what you describe as the rise of the Nazarenes. Do you want to just describe that for us, Justin? Yeah, and, and, and this one too, I feel like I'm, I'm expanding on something that, that Tom brings out in, in Resurrection of the Son of God that, that I feel like, you know, as far as I've seen, just isn't really brought up in, in other books on the resurrection and, and many books uh, focusing on even on early Christianity. And it's the, the fact that there were, by my count, I don't know if Tom actually did a number, but by my count, 14 other movements that Josephus mentions, that Philo of Alexandria mentions, that we, that some, you know, some are mentioned even in the New Testament. But there there are uh, 14 other messianic type movements. Not all of them are probably a leader that claimed to be the Messiah. Some of them probably did. But they're all movements that are very similar to Jesus. They have a charismatic type leader. They gain a lot of followers. Some of them even claim to do miracles and different things. And then they, the, the thing that really separates all of them from the Jesus movement is the leader and their followers fight against Rome in some way. There's some type of violent um, uh, attack. And so the leader ultimately gets killed, ultimately gets crushed by, you know, whoever the Maximus, you know, uh, gladiator Maximus mm. uh, Russell Crowe is at that time. Basically, they get <laughs> beheaded or something happens to the uh, leader of this movement. And then the movement's end the 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 followers of this of this charismatic messianic type leader whoever they are ultimately those followers just go and get jobs you, you, they, you they don't they don't ever say this leader is alive in some way and so let's keep this going exactly they're they're a lot more exactly. stubborn than the you know 19th century uh millerites and that, that's one of the things that really hit me when i was writing the first of my big series, The New Testament and the People of God. And uh, I remember it, it was a sudden clarity which actually sustained me through a whole term of, of hard pastoral work back in my, in my day job. Um, 
the the the, the sense that all these other movements when the leader died you had a choice you either had to give up the movement or you had to get assuming you'd survived yourself or you had to get another leader and the fascinating thing is that the early church did get a leader and it was jesus brother james and how easy it would have been granted we know of other movements where they they find someone else from the same family the the, the line that ends up with the people who die on masada um, in the early 70s they are part of a family that goes back nearly 100 years how easy it would have been for them to say well of course uh, we we love jesus Jesus, he was great, but of course they killed him. But now we have his mm. brother, and he's obviously the one, and he's a great man of prayer and a fine teacher, and he's respected universally, etc. So he must be the Messiah. But nobody ever said that James was the Messiah. And that kind of negative evidence, like Sherlock Holmes's dog that didn't bark in the night, <laughs> you know, the fact that nobody said James was the Messiah, well, no, they wouldn't, because they knew that Jesus was, and the only reason why they knew he was, was that he'd been raised from the dead. And so that's a kind of a novel. It's it's something that bursts into history in all sorts of senses. Yeah, and I th and I think it really shows the you know the kind of mindset that these especially Jewish uh, men had at this time. And this mi mindset wasn't we're going to try to figure out how to keep this thing going when the leader dies. You know, it's like when the leader dies, it's done. <laughs> and so I mean, it, it captures the kind of mindset of, of this time period. So it always frustrates me when they do. You know, when people challenge, you know, the idea of the resurrection, they try to compare, you know, the Jesus movement with like movements from America in the in the 19th century, like the Millerites who, you know, predicted Jesus would return in, in 1844 or something. And then and then when he didn't return, and they just shift the goalposts. They, yeah, they just yeah, they just okay. change it. Oh, yeah. he returned invisibly yeah, or something yeah. like that. They weren't like that. And, 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 and also love that it's a counterfactual. It's a counterfactual because we know the Jesus movement could have gone just like the other 14. And so the question Absolutely. is, the historical question is, well, why didn't it? And I like to compare, you know, Simon Bar Kokhba is the, the most fun to compare with Jesus because Simon Bar Kokhba actually did, we know for sure, claim to be the Messiah. He actually did the one thing that no other Messianic pretender ever did. He actually reigned from Jerusalem for almost three years, issuing coins, you know, writing letters to his generals. I mean, he... He actually had a little pretend kingdom for almost yep, three years. Yep. Incredible thing. Well, and most when you say pretend, a pretend kingdom, I mean, it, it was, I, I've often said to the students, it, it was basically a three-year kingdom of God movement with a Messiah at the heart of it. Um, From Jerusalem. The, the, I was so glad when I saw that you were going, uh, doing a lot with Bar Kokhba in this book because I found over the years that most students have never heard of Bar Kokhba. Mm. Um, it, it's as though they may be heard of, of the story as far as AD 70, um, and then maybe the writing of the New Testament extends a bit, but then they, they kind of tune out after that. But actually the Bar Kokhba parallel and of course 200 years earlier the Maccabee parallel um, uh, which is which is very interesting the, the resistance movement there against the Syrians and those kind of frame the Jesus story both in the sense of well it's like that and then in the sense that guess what it turns out radically different and um, uh, as you said a moment ago one of the differences being that even when they're being persecuted, Jesus' followers don't fight, as Jesus himself says to Pontius Pilate. Um, if I were a king from this world, my servants would fight to stop me being handed over. And that carries on. Um, and that's, that's the other real extraordinary novum, that this is a messianic movement, a kingdom of God movement, but it proceeds not by force of arms, but by the kind of witness we see in Acts, which is, uh, which is the, the telling of the story, 
um, prayer, healing, communal life, suffering, martyrdom, etc. That's how the kingdom of God advances, so it seems, which was as much of a puzzle. I mean, when you look at Acts chapter 1 and the disciples are saying, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? It's as though they're saying, is this when we get to do the stuff with the swords and kicking out the Romans? And Jesus saying, no, 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 just wait and see. It'll, It'll be quite different, but you will receive power, but not the sort of power that they expected. And that, Go if ahead. I could add, so and that leads to another aspect. So of this, so so, so I'm, I feel like I'm I'm taking now that same kind of argument that 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 you you I feel like originally made with the fourteen other movements, comparing that to the Jesus movement, saying, well, if those fa- you know, if those failed, what you know, why didn't the Jesus movement fail? Exactly. So I'm doing this kind of century by century, not every century, but I'm doing this by other key events that have happened throughout the last two thousand years. And so another one would be going along with exactly what Jesus says. You know, you're not going to fight. You're not going to, no, we're not going to destroy the Romans yet. We're not going to, you know, bathe in the sinner's blood yet. That's coming, Psalm 58, that's coming. But but ultimately, you're going to receive power from the Holy Spirit. You're going to go to Jerusalem. You're going to start here in Jerusalem, just like Isaiah 2 said. And then you're going to go to Judea and Samaria. And then you're going to go to the ends of the earth. And of course, we would agree, you know, Luke, Luke himself, probably when he said ends of the earth, maybe he thought of Spain, but, but Rome seems to be the center of what he's talking about. But what does the Holy Spirit mean when he says ends of the earth? I think the Holy Spirit clearly thought of wherever <laughs> there are people, you know, as far as the curse is found kind of thing. And so, and so an argument with this is, is this could have not happened, right? I mean, it could have not happened that the gospel would go to the ends of the earth. And so, and, and the ends of the earth from Jerusalem, you know, one place would be something like Papua New Guinea. And Papua New Guinea has apparently, last I checked, 90% at least profess to be Christian. <laughs> so, so and it, it, to me, it's kind of incredible that you have a movement that is 0.00001% of the Roman Empire. And, I, you know, I believe the risen Jesus said that, but even a skeptic who thinks that this was, you know, Luke was written in the late, you know, 80s or 90s AD, you know, they're writing this, it's still a very small percentage of the empire. There was no guarantee that this gospel would go to Papua New Guinea. It would go <laughs> right, to exactly. every nation on exactly. the planet. And so, and so, see, to me, that's another counterfactual. The gospel could have not done that. <laughs> this, the, the Christians could have not been successful, but they were. Hmm. Absolutely. And I think we in the post-Enlightenment Western world have been kind of bullied by the Enlightenment rhetoric to imagine that actually when we look out at the world, Christianity is really part of the problem rather than part of the solution. Um, And then you see what has happened with education and medicine and care for the poor and so on uh, around the world where the gospel has gone that's been the characteristic which are of course the 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 jesus shaped things that that the church has always done and you say actually so as the argument that tom holland has made recently so much of what we now take for granted in terms of how we do stuff comes ultimately from a Christian imperative. It's certainly not the way that uh, the Roman emperors would have would have run the world. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I'm fascinated. The end of the world, of course, when St. Patrick in Ireland um, believed that Ireland was the end of the world because that was the farthest northwest that you could get, so that if the Irish had been converted, then the end would come um, because he, he didn't realize there was something else over there. Something over <laughs> the <water>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a, whole, a whole other chunk uh, of 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 the world but um uh, and one of the things that's been borne in on me recently 
in the New Testament again and again, they're retrieving passages like Psalm 2 and Psalm 89, which are about the messianic rule from one sea to the other, from the river to the ends of the earth. And, and Psalm 2 particularly extending the Abrahamic promise. It's not now just one piece of territory in the Middle East. It's the whole world. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, the uttermost parts of the world for your possession. So that the mission of the church is the messianic mission which is foretold, promised in, in Israel's scriptures and uh, which then is fulfilled in a way that nobody saw coming. Um, but it has, as you say, it has happened. It's, it's, it's ongoing. Um, and okay, we've still got a lot of mess and trouble and the church is still far from the lovely society it ought to be. But um, the name of Jesus has gone round the world and back again. I, I was going to say... To, to, to that extent, you know, you're, you're both Bible scholars, but obviously the, these arguments get used in a sort of an apologetic form uh, to, sure. to, 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 you know, to, to argue for the truth of Christianity. This is obviously for you. The resurrection makes best sense of all of these bedrock facts, Justin, yes. and that's what you would argue. Um, I'd be interested, Tom, do you think that, that sort of this is a good approach to kind of trying to persuade people of the truth of Christianity to say, look at the historical facts, look at at least the very basic facts that all scholars can agree on and and that you can point people towards a conclusion that is ultimately supernatural in, in, in form? It's it's very difficult because, as I say, most people now know only too well the bad side of the story, whether it's the Crusades, the Inquisition, the burning of witches, the this, the that, the other. Um, and in present political circumstances, you know, um, all sorts of things which you could pull out, like the um, Russian Orthodox um, uh, bishop Supportive supporting the Ukraine war, etc., etc. Yeah. Et and, and, oh, well, if that's your Christianity. And I think we have a question possibly down on the song sheet for later on, I'm not sure if we'll get to it, about the present state of things in America, but but also the, the, the many scandals that have gone on um, in different parts of the church. And of course, the media love that because so much of the media, certainly in my country, is driven by either agnostic or rank atheist um, producers and directors who love to tell stories of how stupid and wicked the church is. So everybody kind of knows that stuff. And we've, we have to remind them of what people on the ground know perfectly well um, that, that actually the church does all kinds of amazing things in ways that never make it into the news media um, and, and so that, that's a problem of perception so I, I, I wouldn't immediately rush to say well look what a wonderful thing the church is that must be a proof of supernatural origin I, except in this sense that I, I think it was Stephen Neal who said um, the church must have been energized by the Holy Spirit because it's been so muddled and so sinful and so <laughs> stupid that if it hadn't been for the Holy Spirit, it would have, have collapsed under its own weight long since. So I'm happy with failed. that argument. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and another way, the way I put it, I, I've, I've made this point in, in lectures and, and I've used this in debates and I, I'm curious to hear how, how you think about this. The way I've put it when it comes to the, you know, the great things that the church has done is I say, when we compare the worst in the world with the church, the church has done probably all the sins and maybe more than than other things and you know other movements and other religions and other things in the in the world. So so sin to sin equal. Mm -hmm. But what about when we compare the best with their best? That's that's my argument. What about when we compare forgiveness in the history of the church with other religions or atheists? What about when we compare that? You show me a Father Maximilian 
a man who who stood up and and took and you know took the place of a man at Auschwitz and then starved and died that that priest Father Maximilian and and he died in the place of that of that uh, uh, man sure. in, in Auschwitz. Where's a story like that outside of the Christian church? The Amish forgiveness, you know, the guy comes in and shoots all the the, the kids up, and the Amish forgive them. Mm. You know, the, the, these kind you don't find that kind of forgiveness in Islam, in Hinduism, in Buddhism. This is this is a distinctly Christian type thing, and so and and it comes goes back to Jesus on the cross saying, "Father, forgive them." No, absolutely, they they and do. you see it, and it's very interesting that when Stephen is martyred um, uh, at the end of Acts chapter eight, um, he says, "Lord, don't lay this sin to their charge." Now as we were saying about other innovations so if you look at the jewish martyr stories for instance the maccabean martyr stories the martyrs as they're being tortured and killed are calling down god's vengeance on their persecutors and that that's what you do that, that's that's the most natural and obvious thing um, and it could claim some support from some of the psalms etc etc but the 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 radical difference that jesus makes at that point is so extraordinary that it is still mind-blowing and it's very interesting that forgiveness right there at the heart of the lord's prayer you know isn't it interesting that we pray that day by day forgive us as we forgive etc that, that that is the one of the central bits of christian dna and yeah it stands out and um, it's obviously healing and fruitful and regenerating in ways that the rest of the world can't imitate and often can't understand and if i i can add to that i don't know if you heard that challenge that christopher hitchens would bring out regularly and, and see, Christians would dismiss this challenge that he would bring, but I actually thought it was a good challenge, and I thought it should be met. He would say, tell me something that Christians can do that I can't do. Oh, and, oh. And, and he would go around and ask this, and they would, they would say, well, well, but we're all just sinners and stuff like that. This would be some of the ways Christians would answer it. But I think he's right. If we are new creation people, <laughs> if we are Easter people, if we are filled with yeah. the Holy Spirit, there should be things that we do that none of the rest of the world can do. And interestingly, Hitchens did admit that that one of the answers he received that he thought was a good answer was you cannot from the cross say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Wow. Wow. And and yeah. and he's but but he went back on and said, Yes, but I don't think loving your enemies and forgiving your enemies is a good thing. So that so, <laughs> yeah. so, so well, his own of of course. And and you having lived in the Middle East will know. I remember when I was living in the Middle East in, in 1989, um, somebody said to me, of course you realize that in this part of the world, forgiveness has never been a virtue because forgiveness is seen as weakness because if somebody does something wrong, then justice demands that we get even. Otherwise, the world is a mess because justice is, is what matters. So uh, justice in the sense of retributive, uh, retributive justice, meaning that forgiveness, oh, you're just being a wimp or you can't stand up for yourself or you, you're, you're not looking after your family or whatever it is. And that really struck me. And I remember coming back to the UK after my time in the Middle East there and thinking the UK is not perfect, but at least in this country, people know that they're supposed to forgive, even if they don't do it or not very good at mm -hmm. it. It's, it's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. We've got more chance for you both to interact on future episodes of the show, because Justin's going to stick around 
for some more conversations and some questions that are coming up in the next couple of episodes when we talk about the New Testament, the Gospels and resurrection as well. But I've really enjoyed being able to introduce you to each other. So so thank you for being with us, Justin. And thank you, Tom. It's been a blessing. It's been an honor. Thank you very much. Great to be with you. And just a reminder, um, the bedrock of Christianity is Justin Bass's book. Um, we often talk about Tom's books on the show, but today <laughs> we're talking about Justin's book. Uh, it's available. We'll make sure there's a link from today's show. But uh, for now, Justin and Tom, thanks for being with me. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for being with us on this week's edition of the show. Uh, coming up next time, uh, Justin Bass will continue to be with us. Uh, Tom's back again as well. And we'll be looking at some of your questions on the Gospels. So look out for that. For more from the show, premierunbelievable.com. Don't forget as well, uh, we're not far off uh, our special day, Tuesday the 15th of November, Cultural Questions with Sean McDowell. Hope to see you there. Do register at unbelievable.live. For now, thanks for being with us and see you next time.